remain standing for the gospel lesson, our sermon text from John 20, the first half of the chapter, chapter is what we'll read. Listen carefully, give your ear to the good news, the gospel of our God. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore <clears throat> went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. And he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who came to the tomb first, went in also, and he saw, and he believed. For as yet they did not know the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary stood outside by the tomb, weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. Then they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Now when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say, teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, and to my God and your God. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. We thank you for this word from you, God. And we confess that apart from your spirit, we cannot truly believe it or understand it because these are spiritual things. And only those who have your spirit are able to discern them. And so pour out your spirit on us, even as you already have given us your spirit. Pour out your spirit so that we can understand and believe and discern you and your good news that you've accomplished for us in Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. Please be seated.
as far as the disciples could see, it was all over. They had they'd come up, they'd come against a blank wall. And they never imagined it would end like this in such despair. Jesus was dead and they had not obviously understood his prophecies, his promises of resurrection on the third day. Their time with Jesus was over, done. Their hopes in Jesus had died right along with Jesus. They didn't know they were soon going to experience a greater joy than they had ever known possible. John 20 tells us, it tells the story of that joy. Christ brings to his followers the truth of the resurrection along with its accompanying joys. He also brings it to us, the readers. Their experience, their joys become ours. The Lord knows the grief that you're going through, that you face even today, even this week. He knows it no less than he knew the brokenheartedness of Mary and Peter and John and the other disciples. But he gives hope. He is the God who gives hope in the midst of trials, difficulties, temptations to despair or to doubt. And to the extent that you insert yourself into this story... To the degree that you realize again, for the first time, that the tomb is empty, that Jesus is alive, he's been raised from the dead, you will identify with the original disciples, not only in grief, but also in resurrection joy. That's what this passage sets out to do for us and in us. The first verse of John 20 it says that Mary Magdalene came to the tomb on the first day of the week. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early, while it was still dark. So, you know, it's like that period as the sun's coming up. Is it still the day before or is it the new day yet? When it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Why, is G- why does John tell us this detail that, that he rose on a Sunday? Why is that important? Because the resurrection of Jesus marks the beginning of a new week, which is to say the beginning of a new creation, a new world. The first day of the original creation, back in Genesis 1, was also a Sunday, the first day of the week, naturally, in Genesis 1. And here in John 20, Resurrection Sunday begins a new creation week. You see, all of world history can be divided up into two ages. Old creation history and new creation history. There's a a sense in which we live in the overlap age right now. But there's a real sense too that we'll focus on this morning that Jesus in his resurrection began definitively the new creation even though we confess and realize there's way more to come. So old creation and new creation, and the pivotal point is the cross. Old creation 
includes everything from Genesis 1 to the crucifixion of Christ. New creation history includes everything from the resurrection of Christ to his return on the last day, and we could say, and beyond. The resurrection of Jesus is the event of world history. If you are outside of Christ, then you are still in the old Adam, and you belong to the old creation. You're still an old creation in Adam. But everyone in Christ, everyone who enjoys union with the Savior, belongs to the new creation in Jesus. Therefore, Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Jesus rose on a Sunday, which is why the church has been meeting on Sundays for worship every single Sunday for 1,991 years. Think about that. Every Sunday, Christians have gathered for all almost 2,000 years. In the old creation, the people of God rested and worshiped on the seventh day, Saturday, but now in the new creation, we meet on the eighth day. Yes, the eighth day. In the, in the symbolism of Scripture, the first day of the week is also the eighth day of the previous week. And, and I'll show you uh, kind of a proof text for that in a minute, but just think about it. In, in Scripture, the eighth day symbolizes new life, new beginnings, new creation, new week. Jesus rose on the eighth day. In the Old Testament, Israelite Jewish boys were circumcised on the eighth day, and that, that was significant. Cre- creation week happened in seven days, and so the eighth day is the beginning of something new, a new week. And circumcision did signify a, a sort of removal of the old. The bloody rite was a sort of death and resurrection. It reminded Israel that they couldn't produce the Messiah on their own, apart from God's rolling back the curse and creating something out of nothing, as Paul says in Romans 4. That's what salvation is. That's what he's doing through the seed of Abraham, creating in, even beginning with Abraham, something out of nothing. That's spiritual life. So he created something out of nothing in Genesis 1, but he does the same thing spiritually in the descendants of Abraham, Paul says. The Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread lasted eight days. Down in verse 26 of John 20, if you have your Bibles open to John 20, you can look down at verse 26. The text describes an event that happened on the following Sunday, which which is described as eight days later, or after eight days. So Sunday to Sunday is eight days and it makes a, John wants to say that number eight there in verse 26, the eighth day of the week. So we gather for worship on the eighth day of every week. We gather on resurrection day once a week. Every Sunday is resurrection day. So it's not, it's not as though preaching these sermons on John 20 and 21 is, is having Easter in September or October, because every Sunday is really uh, Easter. It's, it's Resurrection Sunday every Lord's Day. 
And this, by the way, is the same John who refers to Sunday as the Lord's Day, the Day of the Lord in Revelation 1. So after Mary sees that the body is gone, verse 2 says that she runs back to tell the disciples. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Now verse 11 is going to come back to Mary. But first, John tells us about Peter and John's experience in verses 3 to 10. So let's get those verses before us. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and they were going to the tomb. So they both ran together and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there and yet did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb and he saw the linen cloths lying, cloths lying there and the handkerchief that had been around his head not lying with the linen cloths but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their homes. The key verse here that we discussed last week is verse 8. John saw, John believed. Some scholars like to debate what what he possibly could have believed. But according to verse 9, and also according to to the way this word believed is used when it's not qualified in any way, he obviously is believing the gospel. He's believing in the resurrection. The remaining linens caused John to believe. that The folded face cloth proved beyond doubt that Jesus was alive. He's making deductions that are obvious. No grave robber would leave behind these linen cloths that Jesus was wrapped in. And a grave robber certainly would not have taken the time to fold anything. And Somewhere in the back of John's mind was a memory, even if it didn't come to the surface, of Jesus telling them that he would rise from the dead. So, so the gospel's in there, and it's just now starting to, to germinate, to, to, to grow. John was the first person in world history, in the whole world, to believe that Christ was raised from the dead. At some level, we're going to see that it, he needed to mature in this belief. And verse 9 confirms that John believed in the resurrection, but it also indicates that he didn't realize the scriptural significance of this, this belief. He believed Jesus was alive, but he didn't know much about what that meant. The, you know, he, he didn't realize that the Hebrew scriptures that he had read, that he had studied, that he had memorized from childhood, all pointed to this historical event that he's just beginning to process and understand. And, and you gotta, you got to put yourself in John's shoes. He, he doesn't know what we know now. For, for all he knew, the resurrection of Jesus was like the resurrection of Lazarus. When Lazarus was raised from the dead, he wasn't given his heavenly resurrection body, right? Lazarus 
eventually died again, and his body decayed. He's still dead, and he awaits his resurrection body along with with the other saints. John, you see, didn't realize everything the resurrection of Jesus was or meant. John believed, but his faith was immature. He believed, but he didn't understand the uniqueness of Christ's resurrection. He didn't didn't grasp, grasp just yet the redemptive significance of this historical event. The rolled up face cloth on the stone slab is not only evidence of the resurrection, it also reminds us that the veil between us and God has finally been lifted torn, removed. God no longer hides behind a cloth as he did in the old covenant. In the tabernacle and in the temple, God concealed his glory behind a curtain, a veil. Nobody could go behind. The curtain right in front of the Holy of Holies was made of linen cloth. And it served as God's face covering. The linen curtain exiled people from God's presence. The curtain that masked God's presence in the temple was embroidered, remember, with cherubim. Just like the cherubim that kept Adam and Eve out of of the garden. The Garden of Eden, you see, was the first sanctuary that man was exiled from. It's a garden sanctuary, a garden temple. Getting back to the tabernacle and temple, do you remember what was behind the curtain of the temple? I've already said the Holy of Holies, but what, was on, what, what piece of furniture was on the other side of that linen cloth in the Holy of Holies? Go ahead, what was it? Ark of, that's right, I heard it. The Ark of the Covenant. On top of the Ark, these details are important. Take note of what we're talking about here. It's going to come back. On top of the Ark was a slab of pure gold. It was called the Mercy Seat. And that's where God sat enthroned. It's where his, he rested his feet. It's, it's where he sat. There's a lot of images there. His glory rested there on top of the gold slab that lay on the Ark of the Covenant. And on each side of the mercy seat was what? That's right, the cherubim. Angels, heavenly beings, cherubim. Both angels, we'll call them generically, were made of pure gold. So they were bright, shiny, and, and here's the important part, God's presence, God's glory rested right between these two angels on the mercy seat. But no one could see any of this. What, I, what I've just described to you, the, the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat on top, the two angels on either side, and the glory of God resting between the two angels on the, the gold slab, all of this was hidden from everyone. Even the high priest 
who could go in once a year and, and sprinkle the blood. Before he'd go in, he had to create a bunch of incense smoke that he, so that he couldn't actually see. Filled up the room. So what's the point of all this? In the old creation, after the fall of Adam in the garden, God veiled himself. He, he, he wasn't veiled before, but he was after sin. And he stayed hidden. He wore a face cloth throughout the Old Testament. He exiled humanity from his presence. Because of sin, there was distance, separation between God and man. But now he's taken the veil off. The the cherubim have been removed from the garden's entrance. The veil in the temple with the embroidered cherubim has been torn in two. God has taken off his face linen. In Jesus, we have full access to God. In Jesus, we we see God face to face. No longer is he hiding from us. He has fully revealed himself in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. And the thing that kept the, the curtain up was our sin. The reason God didn't let us into his sanctuary was our deep unrighteousness. Our sin, our failure to obey God separated us from God. But now, all that's been dealt with on the cross. Our sin, which created that wall of separation between us and God, has been removed through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Through faith in Christ, your sins are forgiven and all of your unrighteousness has been Cleansed. Verse 10 says the disciples went home after this, after seeing this. However, the forlorn Mary, is, is, she's, she stays back. Verse 11, but Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. Here we come to another climactic part of, of this story. It's, it's a climactic moment. And, I, and as I read verse 12, think about what the details of verse 12 remind you of. John's theological and literary genius shines through here. Verse 12, and she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. So what are, the, what are these two angels doing here? Why two instead of one? Why does John tell us that there are two? Why does he tell us how they're positioned? You know, one on one end, the other at the other end. What do you think that means? Now, a few minutes ago, I described what was behind the temple and the veil and the Holy of Holies. There, there remember, it was the Ark of the Covenant Top of the ark was a slab of gold called the mercy seat. And on each side, the mercy seat was, was an angel, two shining angels. And God's glory rested between the two angels. So can you see what John is doing here? Can you see what God is doing here in orchestrating this event? The tomb of Jesus has become the new holy of holies. The slab where Jesus lay is the new mercy seat. Jesus is the glory of God. 
And he had been lying between the two angels on this slab. In the temple, God's presence rested between the two golden angels. In the tomb, they, the body of Jesus had been resting between the two real angels. Jesus is the presence of God. And this is a huge theme in John's gospel. Where Jesus goes, God goes. and he, where, the, where Jesus goes, the temple goes, for that matter. If you have seen Jesus, you have seen God's glory. Remember what John says at the very beginning of his gospel. We have seen his glory, God's glory. Glory as of the only begotten Son from the Father. So, so the new glory of God, the presence of God is Jesus. It's centered on Jesus. Seeing Jesus means seeing God's glory face to face. Jesus is the incarnate, incarnated glory of God. And Jesus has made a way for you to enter into the Holy of Holies. Not, not the one in the old temple or the old tabernacle, but the heavenly one. In the old creation, the Holy of Holies was off limits to everyone, except once a year on the Day of Atonement when the high priest would go in and sprinkle the blood on the ark, on the mercy seat, between the angels. But now in the new creation, the Holy of Holies has received a far greater blood greater than any ever received on, on any of the previous days of atonement. The blood of Jesus has been sprinkled on the mercy seat. And because of that blood, the veil has been completely removed. The blood of Jesus has made a way for people like you and me to enter into God's throne room, into his most holy place, into his inner sanctuary. Hebrews 4.16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And indeed, the book of Hebrews is a theology of what we're talking about here with Jesus and his blood making a way for us to come into the Holy of Holies. Now, Peter who denied Jesus three times, can boldly come into God's presence, his special presence, because of the blood of Christ, because it has cleansed him of all unrighteousness. Now, Mary Magdalene, who had been possessed by seven demons, can come into the Holy of Holies because the blood of Christ has cleansed her of all unrighteousness. Now, you, who may have sinned worse than Peter, and Mary can enter the heavenly temple's inner sanctuary and approach God's throne, his throne of grace, with boldness because the blood of Christ has cleansed all of your unrighteousness. The death and resurrection of Jesus means your sins are forgiven. The torn veil, the folded face cloth, the the rolled away stone mean that all the obstacles between you and God have been removed, rolled away, rolled back. The curse is being rolled back. No matter what you've done, no matter how awful a sinner you've been or are or you're being, your unrighteousness has been cleansed through the death burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the good news. 
this forgiveness, this gift of forgiveness belongs to those who confess their sins to God and believe in the salvation that he offers in Jesus. It belongs to those who cling to the cross of Christ and to the cross of Christ alone. It belongs to those who belong to the risen and reigning Son of God. So Mary's grief is about to give way to resurrection joy. Let's read the rest of the passage, starting in verse 13. Then they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Now when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him. I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say teacher. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. Mary supposes Jesus to be the gardener and ultimately she's right because Jesus is the new Adam in the original creation, God put the first Adam in a garden on the eastern side of Eden. In the new creation, God put the new Adam, the second Adam, Jesus, in a garden just east of Jerusalem. Both the first Adam and the resurrected last Adam start out in gardens. Not only that, both Adam and Jesus undergo death and resurrection in their respective gardens. And a very similar thing happens to them when they, when they wake up. When Adam woke from his death-like sleep, when he was raised from his God-induced coma, what did he see? Or better, who did he see? A woman, Eve. She had been made out of his side while he was sleeping. The first thing Adam calls this woman is woman. He doesn't call her Eve until Genesis 3. The very first thing he says, remember, in his poem, his song is, she, is, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. John knows that verse. Likewise, when Jesus woke from his sleep, when he was raised from his God-induced Death, literal death. What did he see? Or better, who did he see? A woman, Mary Magdalene. And the very first thing Jesus calls this woman is woman. He doesn't call her Mary until later. The very first thing he says in verse 15 is, Woman, why are you weeping? Weeping, woman. Is also, remember, back in verse 13, what the angels, how, how they addressed Mary. So calling her woman isn't derogatory, like woman, you know, stay in your place, that kind of a thing. It's not putting her down. No, in this story, Mary is a symbol of the bride, the bride of Christ. She's the new Adam's new Eve. And as such, Mary Magdalene represents the church, which is the bride of Christ. 
Adam had to die, figuratively, so that God could create for him and from him a new bride. Jesus had to die literally so that God could create for him and from him a new bride, the church. Now, of course, John 20 doesn't lend any bit of credibility to the, to the nonsense out there which says that Jesus and Mary Magdalene were married and, and they had children. But we shouldn't let rubbish like that prevent us from seeing the marital imagery in this passage. Mary Magdalene points back to the first woman, Eve, the first Adam's right, who was presented to, presented to Adam in a garden. But she also points forward to the new woman, the church, the last Adam's bride, who will be presented to Christ in a garden city, the new Jerusalem. If you read Revelation 21, the new Jerusalem is a garden. And the bride comes down. When the original Adam was sleeping in his garden, God took a rib from his side and made from him a brand new creation, a woman. And he does the same thing. He doesn't take a rib, but he takes blood. The water and blood that flowed from Jesus' side creates a brand new creation, a woman, a bride. And eventually, of course, uh, Adam calls Eve by name. In Genesis 3, he names her Eve. And Jesus does a similar thing here in John 20. He calls Mary woman first, but then in verse 16, he says to her, Mary. And then Mary knows who he is. We could also say she finds out who she is too in that moment when Jesus names her. And we're not surprised by Mary's reaction. Quite naturally, she wants to, she wants to keep Jesus in her clutches. Not going to let you go this time. Not going to get away again. But look at what Jesus says to her in verse 17. Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. Go and, and tell the disciples you know, what, what's happened, that, that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be ascending to, to my Father, but their Father my God, and also their God. But why can't Mary cling? Why is, she, why is she forbidden to do that? I mean, a week from now, in eight days, Jesus is going to invite Thomas to touch him. Right? Multiple places. So why can't Mary touch him? Well, Mary is in a different situation. Mary's problem is that she was clutching Jesus as maybe as if he is going to disappear again. And, and that's Jesus' response indicates that when he says, I'm not, I, haven't, I haven't ascended yet. So, so Jesus says, in essence, don't worry, Mary. I'm, I, I haven't ascended back to my Father. Make no mistake, Mary, I'm, I'm going to ascend. I'm in the process of ascending. And you need to come to terms with that, but it hasn't happened yet, so no need to cling so desperately, so tight. We, we could paraphrase it this way. I'll expand a little bit. Mary, stop holding on to me. After all, I haven't yet returned to heaven. I'm not yet in the ascended state, so you don't have to hang on as if 
I were about to disappear permanently. This is a time for joy. This is a time for sharing the good news, not a time for clutching me as if I were some jealously guarded dream come true. Stop clinging to me and go tell the disciples. You have a job to do. Go tell the disciples that I, having been raised from the dead, have begun the process of ascending back to my father and theirs. So this makes the prohibition to Mary and, and the, or the, the contrast between the prohibition to Mary and the invitation to Thomas easier to understand. Mary is not... Mary is told to stop touching because her, her, her fervent and relieved grasping doesn't really comprehend, it doesn't really grasp what's going on. She believes Jesus is resurrected, but she fails to understand that Jesus isn't going away just yet, not immediately. She also fails to understand that he will disappear soon. She's going to have, she's going to, have to let him go physically in the near future. His physical presence won't be here. Thomas, on the other hand, is told to touch. Why? Because unlike Mary... He has not yet believed that Jesus is resurrected. So there's no contradiction. Mary and Thomas are in two different places in their walk with Christ. So Jesus tells them to do two different things. And the Lord disciples every one of us uniquely like this. He meets each of us where we are in our walk with him. He, relate, he relates to every believer personally. The good shepherd knows his sheep individually. And he shepherds them individually. He knows where you are. He knows your needs. He knows your struggles. He knows your grief. He knows your doubts. He knew Mary's grief. He knew Thomas's doubts. And with this knowledge, he patiently, gently transforms you from glory to glory. And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into his image from one degree of glory to another. 2 Corinthians 3.18 This passage in John 20 offers a beautiful contrast between Mary's grief as she stands outside the tomb and the grace, God's grace, being declared to her by the angels inside the tomb. Three times John depicts her weeping, verses 11, 13, and 15. And two times Mary is asked, Why are you weeping? The angels, why are you weeping? Jesus, why are you weeping? You're standing before the throne of grace. You're peering into the Holy of Holies. You're beholding the new Ark of the Covenant. Mary, the atoning sacrifice for your sins has been made. The true day of atonement has come. The blood of the eternal covenant has been sprinkled on the mercy seat. Indeed, it's been sprinkled on your heart. Jesus is alive and he sits enthroned between the cherubim, as the psalm puts it. 
To Mary, the empty tomb was a cause for grief. But to you, to the reader, and in reality, even at that time, even in that moment, the empty tomb is a cause for joy. The empty tomb declares the victory of God over the power of sin and death. The gospel overcomes grief. Jesus overturns grief with grace. I was talking to a church member this week, and they shared with me uh, how difficult uh, it was to go through a certain season of, of life, of their life, a season that lasted years and the heartache this person endured, uh, this, it was deep, it was wide, and it's not something even that most of us experience. But this person told me that in the midst of their grief, in the midst of the pain, before anything had resolved itself, really, at least in you know, the way this person would have liked, another saint came along and pointed them to the future joy of the resurrection which is where that person's hope really lay, and it's where our hope lies all the time. Some of you are enduring heartache now. You're grieving a loss, the loss of a loved one, the loss of a friendship, the loss of a job. You're facing the consequences of your sin or someone else's sin or just being in a fallen creation that groans in a body that groans, and a society that groans. You have no idea how God is going to use this for your good. You ask, is joy possible? The answer is yes. It's not a trite yes. It's not a yes that says all your problems will go away, therefore you can have joy. The joy that lies ahead, the joy that will be yours in, a, in the fullest way when you are raised from the dead to spend eternity with Jesus is yours right now at this very moment. It belongs to you now just as surely as it belonged to Mary when she's standing, looking into the tomb, not yet knowing the truth, the reality. It was hers then. It's yours now. Because Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead, that joy is yours already. It's waiting to be believed. It's waiting to be embraced. It's been given to you. It's been accomplished for you. You may not see how it's going to manifest itself and materialize. Mary couldn't see how joy was right around the corner, but it was. And it's there for you as well, fellow Christian. It's there for you. The gardener has not only reclaimed his garden, he has reclaimed his creation. And he has reclaimed you 